bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy podcast. I'm Erica. And today we have, I always say we have a special guest, but this really is a special guest. But before we start, um, I'm just going to do some housekeeping. First of all, uh, we're back from vacation for winter vacation. So you'll see more regular pods. Number two is they'll come out on Friday now because I know that you all can't get to it necessarily on Tuesday. But if we release on Friday, you have the whole weekend. All right. So sometimes I will be alone, but you guys, I won't bore you all the time with my sultry voice. I will add in some audio clips so that, you know, everybody understands what's going on and as sort of receipts too. So here's how you can support the pod. We need your support. Um, as a paid member at badandbitchy.com, and literally it's a price of a grande latte per month. And I know you all are like boycotting Starbucks for obvious reasons. Um, and so, yeah, become a paid member. We're going to add in more like paid features. Right now, everything's free, but we're going to pay wallet at some point or pay wall parts. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Share our podcast with your network baddies. And if you have any comments or questions or anything like that, I would love to hear you. Uh, contact us by email. You could suggest um, topics that you want to hear. You can suggest people you want to hear. You can ask questions about past podcasts and all of that good stuff. And lastly, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, we're at Bad and Bitchy. And Instagram, we're at Bad and Bitchy Pod. Now, I have a confession to make. And the confession is I'm behind on Instagram. But I will, I will rectify that. The other thing, too, if you follow us online, is that um, whenever we take breaks or when whenever we come back, it will probably we'll probably post it on Twitter and Instagram. OK, so without further ado. Um, Rachel Gilmore is our guest today. Yay, Rachel. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So um, before we start, you are, the, I guess we are starting, you are the TikTok queen of oh Canadian media, okay, <laughs> with a badass winged liner. Oh my God. You're like your Your winged liner is almost, already getting out of control. It's almost a dell like Oh, Whoa. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I'm telling you. Probably a top three compliment ever. Because <laughs> you know how her winged eye eyeliner is. It is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. It's good. <laughs> so we're going to start with um, what you post on TikTok, what your topics are. What do you like delving into? I really... The thing I've enjoyed the most about doing this TikTok is that I no longer have to run my ideas by, you know, an old guard of journalism that maybe doesn't have the same uh, concern about attacks on uh, LGBTQ rights or marginalized folks um, or the rise of the far right in Canada. So I get to cover those things <laughs> when it used to be a battle when I was working in a mainstream newsroom to do those kinds of stories um, some of the time. And um, now I just get to post about those all the time. And that's what I do. I mostly cover uh, far right extremism, mis and disinformation, um, a lot of reporting on LGBTQ and specifically trans rights, because we're seeing a lot of attacks on those right now. 
um, this beat does put me um, in a space where I'm covering a lot of the things that the conservative leader says. When the other leaders, if and when, you know, Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh start being really aggressively vocally anti-trans, I will cover that as well. But right now, it's really just coming from the conservatives and the PPC, if you count them at all. So I have also been covering Polyev pretty closely because of the kind of rhetoric that he's flirting with, um, or more than flirting with, he's like bucking it at this point. Can I say that? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> We but, have, uh, have an explicit rating, so it's fine. Okay, good. Yeah, I was hoping, I figured, since it's your podcast, but. Uh, <laughs> good lately. I haven't been, like, swearing as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I guess uh, you better catch up then. I've already. Yeah, I know. And so, <laughs> but yeah, that's the kind of stuff I, I uh, publish. So head over to my TikTok for more swears. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like, your TikTok is, like, meticulous. It is cohesive in like, and people, this is important. Um, it's cohesive. It's easy to follow. It's short enough where you get the um, the main points without getting into too much detail. And I find that that on TikTok is like the best way to do it. Um, and some of you might be asking, why are you talking about TikTok so much? Because it's important. It is. It is. I feel like we're in, I don't know, the fifth stage of like social media, um, not growth, but importance. If you know what I mean? Like before it was TikTok, I mean, Twitter. Um, by the way, I do not trust people. Who call Twitter X? Those people are ops. Okay. Um, they're Elon Musk reply guys. That's yeah. <laughs> they're the police. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, at the at the end of the day, that is where a lot of people are getting their news, and you know, it's it's a pretty good platform for that because you can build context. And I think that's important in terms of comparing it to mainstream is that it doesn't build context so you can so that you can understand news items with kind of like this structure where you can bring up things from the past. You can um, you can use parallel information and connect it, those kinds of things. So what got you on TikTok and how did your previous newsroom, Global, how did they take it? Yeah, I well, I mean, I saw um, the Washington Post. They were kind of the first ones to use TikTok for news delivery, but they were kind of leaning into the skit um, approach, uh, whereas I kind of felt like, hey, there's maybe a room in here to just straight up deliver the news in a way that feels like journalism and feels more like traditional journalism than what the Washington Post was doing, which was like really clever. But also I just didn't have time <laughs> to do because it's a really high production value. If I could, I would. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely drew a ton of inspiration and want to give a huge shout out to Abby Kwong at the Toronto Star because she really was the first one to um, do this kind of TikTok in Canada. Like she really was. did it at the Toronto Star. Um, and so, you know, I saw that she was doing that and I was like, oh my God, we should do this too. Like there's, this is this new thing. No one's really doing it. Uh, like no TV newsrooms in Canada are doing it. Um, let's, let's friggin' hop on there. And I pitched it to Global and I said like, I'll take this on. I'll do it in my spare time. Um, you know, aka make it free, which definitely makes everything much more appealing to a newsroom. <laughs> so like, you don't have to pay me any more money. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, they said, okay, you can experiment with it for the election. And I believe, oh my God, 2021. Yeah, 2021. Um, and uh, so I did. And then it did really well in that like couple of months that we used it then. And they let me just kind of keep going. <laughs> and it was continuing to do well. We, when we started out, we had about 10 grand uh, followers, 10K. 
Um, and by the time they stopped me, <laughs> it was like 70K. So, and that was less than a year in. Um, now they stopped me uh, kind of suddenly. I got like a late night email um, saying that they were just pausing it uh, because they're doing some other um, rebranding and stuff. Um, and they promised me it wouldn't be permanent, but for me it was because they continued, um, they kept it paused and mm-hmm. um, until my layoff and then mm-hmm. kept it paused for a few months after that. And now they're kind of posting clips again, but they're not doing the the news delivery that I was doing. Um, so as soon as they paused it, I was like, well, this was my baby for a while and I don't want to lose this momentum. And I was really proud of what I was doing. So I started just doing them on my personal TikTok because I was like, whatever. I'm If they're going to stop it on their TikTok, why would I even give them my free labor? <laughs> um, and yeah. luckily that's worked out. Yeah. And, you're, and pretty much why would you let them use your, your platform, basically? Yeah. Um, when I see Canadian media on TikTok, I see them posting um like TV broadcasts clips. And I'm like, no. I know. No, that's like, not what like, it's for. They'll do well sometimes if it's like a particularly crazy um like clip. Mm-hmm. But that's not really great for consistency, you know? Yeah. Exactly. So let's move on to the far right and how it's your specialty. And you really, you put it in a Canadian context. What trends are you seeing in politics regarding the far right? Oh my God, so much pandering. Like it's really scary, honestly. I I think that there is an anti-establishment populist bent that a lot of politicians saw worked out really well for Trump. And they're kind of trying to emulate a similar rhetoric because it is, I don't know, it's like, I think they realize that not only can they get away with lying, which like politicians have always lied, but they can get away with lying on steroids. Like they can literally live in like a post-truth world and say whatever the hell they want to people and demonize whoever they want. And like, it used to be controversial to say certain things and it's it feels like there's almost nothing, um, nothing's off the table anymore. You know, you can kind of just say whatever. I mean, that's friggin' <laughs> Trump is like potentially gonna go to jail. And I think that helped his numbers. So in the Canadian context, um, I think some politicians saw that and are kind of trying to emulate a similar um, brand of populism. Um, it's Pierre Polyev who's like doing that. No one else has really tried to capture it. And it's working for him because I think that there's a lot of, like, if you don't care about the truth, then you can make things sound really appealing to people because you're not bound by the confines of what is real. And that makes it easy to paint a pretty picture um, or a scary picture depending on what is most beneficial for you to paint. Um, And, you know, I think that that's something, a lot of the rhetoric that we're seeing painted in that picture is the same kind of rhetoric that I see in a lot of the far-right spaces that I monitor. Um, And I I don't know if it's kind of a move to try to get the PPC vote um, back to the conservatives, but to me, that's really scary to normalize things like demonizing the World Economic Forum and things like that, um, and which like you can yeah. have, yeah, like you can have critiques of <laughs> elites gathering in Davos and like you know pontificating about how to make the world better. Like, there's plenty of reasons to think that that's a bit out of touch, but like the reasons why Polyev is attacking the WEF are not those reasons. He's dog whistling these like great reset conspiracy conspiracies that actually have the roots in a lot of anti-semitism and terms like globalism which certain groups use as a stand-in for the jews and things like that so it's just you know and like these people hear these dog whistles and they receive them um and i just think that that is a can of worms to choose to open that i don't know if once it's opened can be closed again and I'm very scared of what that means for what will continue to become normalized in Canada. Well, I can't believe how normalized it is. It's become yeah. 
it and it is scary because like i feel like the only pushback in media are what like new media so new media meaning like your new media i'm new media like the podcast is new media um here's what i noticed remember the whole the whole standing ovation and clapping for a nazi thing yeah okay so the toronto star just wrote it up as ss soldier blah 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 and i'm like did nobody notice that ss means nazi and that's a big problem for me because if the newsroom is just going to write um without any analysis without any understanding of the roots of these we're in big trouble because there seems to be no pushback in fact they don't even recognize what's going on enough to report on it and when you say hey we should report on this oh we have no money oh we have no money bullshit okay (laughs) i know that you're spending money on bullshit yeah like if Kristen hopper can have a full-time job thank you there's money that thank you thank you it's amazing to me how much i know it's the national post but it's still amazing to me they are themselves a platform where this stuff moves and nobody says anything about it except for people and that is so frustrating so I, and I see a lot of people, they're like, yeah, I can't watch mainstream anymore, especially with Gaza. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've embarrassed ourselves so much. Well, I guess it's not so much we anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but the mainstream media has made a total ass out of itself with its coverage of this. And it's crazy because if they, I don't know, it just, there's been this sort of um, bias in media coverage of that conflict, a pro-Israel bias for a really long time. And I've been calling it out for a while now. And like, you know, I just feel like there's such a gap in the coverage. If any newsroom had actually pivoted to covering this conflict fairly and honestly and with an eye to the humanity of everyone involved, not just of Israelis, but of the Palestinians who are being, you know, effectively genocided right now, um, then they would have got gotten a huge audience. They would have gotten way more readership. So even if it's a cynical, you know, clickbait, you know, profit motivated ploy, there is all the reason in the world to adjust your coverage and to do it right. But they are so committed to their biases that they're unwilling to even make the changes that would be beneficial to them to make financially, not just morally. Yeah, it's like, don't you want to expand your audience? No, but it's because there's these like old white dudes who are paid a fuckload of money who think that social media doesn't matter and think that, you know, they their ideas and their opinions are objective while the ideas and opinions of racialized women, for example, are are not and these guys are so out of touch and they're running these newsrooms and they're making decisions about what is being covered and what isn't and that has a fundamental impact on the conversations that you know we're seeing take place in our media because like there's almost no jobs so no one wants to piss anyone off anymore and if you are too mouthy in these newsrooms i mean you're not in a great position when layoffs come so have way too much power and way more power i would argue than they had when there were more jobs and when there there was more money in media and it was less concentrated in upper management exactly um so are these conversations is society have us like the everyday person are they having different conversations than what we see on um, reported in the media Oh, I I definitely think so. Like, even just where we're reporting, you know, I mean, you're talking about TikTok and these other platforms. It's like most people are not getting their news by sitting in front of the TV and watching like a 6 p.m. broadcast. Most people now get their news from TikTok, from social media. And like, 
you know, you can decry it and say, oh, this is why, you know, this generation knows nothing or whatever, like so many like fuddy-duddies like to do. Or you can actually look at that and be like, hey, maybe we should meet people where they are and bring the news to them. And, you know, by entering those spaces, you can also see what's being talked about in those spaces and what kind of conversations people are having. I mean, I found it so interesting um, once after my layoff, spending a few months away and then going to the press gallery dinner and even just hearing the kinds of jokes that were made there and the kind of conversations that were going on already after just a few months outside of that bubble felt so much more out of touch than I ever realized when I was in it. And it's unfortunate because I feel like our media should be a reflection of society, but because of various systemic issues within these newsrooms, it's just not. And there's this unwillingness to adapt from the top down. And I think that that is ultimately going to be what kneecaps the media in the long run, because if they chose to adapt, maybe they'd survive better. But instead, they're clinging to these outdated business models while sucking the last bit of profit they can, squeezing it like a friggin' lemon. They're going to be left with an empty husk of, you yeah. know, fresh school grads making 30K a year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the news is going to be a shadow of its former self, which I'd argue in many ways it already is. Yeah. So you kind of have to adopt or die at this point. Yeah, I I noticed that, that, you know, there are people who don't see themselves reflected. And it's like that is becoming bigger and like a larger slice of people. And they don't get their few, their views reflected. And it's, it's so in a way, so they're going to turn to alternative media, but then we get a misinformation problem. And that's why I feel like it's incumbent on us to be in those spaces as actual journalists, as people who have training and understand, you know, the importance of that. Actually, speaking of that, you have a video on TikTok that really talks about um, the new players in this in the social media space and how they are they're showing they're they're trying to pass themselves off as real news. But they're not. They are misinformation type of bubbles that are gaining virality online. And it's concerning because you you literally see Canadian um, reporters and Canadian columnists retweet these people, you know, and politicians aren't are retweeting misinformation. Why would you think oh, yeah. that? Right. So one of the one of the ones I I actually wrote about recently is Visegrad 24. Oh, yeah. Which is a far right um, Polish. It's like a media aggregator kind of a media aggregator. And so and it picks sides. Right. And so it feeds into the emotion of um, controversial topics. Yeah. And then oh, and then like there are others. And so Visegrad is really, um, I would say, pro-Israel. So you yeah. see, you know, a lot of politicians and the media elite really gleaning from them and using them as um, a, a resource. And then there are others that are pro-Palestine. And what I'm finding is that they're like the the far right is taking up both sides of this issue and feeding into people's emotions. And that is where they're clever because we don't see that. We don't really look at that and say, oh, like the far right is doing both sides. What like what's going on here? And we don't see that kind of analysis either. And I think that's where one of the real um, problems are, because a lot of media think that misinformation is something out there that people do. And I'm like, no, it's literally 
in our political structures now that you yeah, can okay, anything. And that's yeah. scary. Yeah. Well, and also like there's a lot of people falling for it. A lot of people aren't doing their due diligence. Um, and it, I think it's really incumbent on political figures when they have their, you know, gray checkmark uh, Twitter accounts to be aware who they're amplifying because, you know, on the one hand, the fact that they're playing this kind of both sides thing is in large part because it's all a grift, right? Like a lot of these people don't actually believe in anything that they're saying. They're just focused on amplifying outrage and getting the most profit possible. Um, but then there are the people who do have beliefs that are underpinning what they're saying. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of the co-option of pro-Palestine rhetoric. And it's not the majority of pro-Palestine rhetoric by any means. Like most of what's being said about Palestine is incredibly important and incredibly, um, it's gone unheard for so long. There's atrocities happening there. There have been atrocities happening for a very long time that haven't been discussed. And I think that's why there's such an appetite for, you know, finally people are talking about this. Um, but a, there, a lot of these like big X accounts and suddenly pivoted to being pro-Palestine without ever, you know, expressing any empathy for Gaza before. Um, all of a sudden, it's these guys who have always hated the Jews. Yeah. And it's like, it's absolutely coming from that, like, neo-Nazi, far-right, mm -hmm. anti-Semitic place, which sucks because then it, like, kneecaps these totally legit and, like, passionate pro-Palestine voices who would unknowingly amplify these accounts and then get their anti-Zionist activism conflated with anti-Semitic activism because these guys are contributing to that by co-opting these conversations. So it's like some of these dudes are doing it just pure, out of pure grift. Some of them are doing it out of a combination of grift and hate. I'm sure some of them are just pure hate. I mean, friggin', I mean, I would say Andrew Tate, but he's also making a lot of money from it. Um, so yeah, it's just like, it's a real mess out. Wait there. a minute. He's still a thing. Oh yeah. He did a Twitter space with Elon Musk recently and, and, and Alex Jones. It's like the scariest blunt rotation you could possibly imagine. Talk about the axis of evil. Yeah. yeah. Oh. What about those men have to be stopped? <laughs> so, um, I noticed that and they're blue check accounts, right? So it oh, yeah. means they're going to get more visibility mm -hmm. than yeah. potentially get money in return for what they're doing. Right. Wow. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. Here's where I feel that you are different. Um. You track stories about people's digital footprints and i want to ask you for our listeners why is that important people's digital footprint shows you a picture of who they are i mean the way that people behave online and the choices they make are still choices that they're making to click and type certain things while they are physically sitting at their keyboard you know like what I, I, I think of immediately is when i found that Pierre Polyev's wife and a bunch of members of his inner circle followed libs of TikTok oh. on Twitter. On yeah, on Twitter. And the this is an account that Media Matters and USA Today tracked its posts over an extended period of time and found that many, many of this this person's posts are then followed by bomb threats, harassment, death threats. And, you know, you could argue that it's a form and some have of stochastic terror, which is when you incite a group of people to commit terroristic acts. And, you know, that's effectively there are hospitals getting bomb threats called in because they perform gender affirming care yeah. and they're having to evacuate. And like that's hugely disruptive. And it's all it's just pure hate. This account is an anti-LGBTQ hate account and there's no reason to follow it unless you're an extremism reporter or you support it like there is no reason for Pierre Polyab's wife to follow that account and you know even if if she had a good reason for it 
she could have said that when I pointed it out, but instead she just defended it. And now she continues, last I checked, she still follows it. And that the last time I checked was a few weeks ago, but it was definitely well after the controversy where I initially pointed it out. The other people who follow it, Jeff Bollingall, founder of Ontario and Canada Proud. Right. Other people, I believe, uh, I think, I don't want to start naming names and get some wrong, so I'd have to double check yeah. them. But yeah. a lot of members of Polyev's inner circle, policy advisors, that kind of thing. And to me, that shows a really cruel streak towards the LGBTQ community. Because are you watching these videos and laughing at them? Are you watching these campaigns to shut down hospitals and, you know, attack libraries because they have the audacity to acknowledge that gay people exist and you're enjoying that? Like, what is the purpose of you following this content? What do you get out of it? So for me, when I track those things, I'm just putting it out there for people to decide what that tells them. And if people want to clarify why they've left the digital footprint that they've left, they're free to do so. And if they don't, that also tells you something. Right. Because I've, and likes are important too. It's not just about retweets. Like Mm -hmm. liking something is a way to, to hide, I feel, what you are actually thinking. And, you know, it seems so like I remember when people used to follow likes on Instagram and like people notice that stuff. Yeah. Like when or you used to be able to see unfollows (laughs) and granted it, it started in pop culture, but there really is um, an important sort of, of reporting there. Yeah. And, you know, you have to be careful to make sure that you're conscious. Like, I mean, one like doesn't necessarily tell you something, but a series of likes can. You know, it's it's things like that. And because it really can tell you a lot about a person and what they believe. And, and what they believe. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to Pierre Poilievre because um, I think this is a really important, I, I think half of this should be about him and how he's like what the techniques he has used um, to to basically build his opposition to um, to progress, you know. I there is a backlash. Um, there's a DEI backlash going on too. Yeah, that I find is working itself through a ver- like a variety of ways. So, for example, we had Faye Johnstone on earlier. Uh, yes. Oh, my gosh. She was amazing. <laughs> and so she she's the one she's like she was tracking parental rights and some of the rhetoric and where that comes from. And what she said, and I totally agree with this, basically, um, is that this is only the beginning. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just look at the states. It yeah. started with parental rights mm-hmm. and gender ideology, mm-hmm. which has never been a term that's been used in LGBTQ circles. Mm-hmm. That started as a way for the Catholic Church to push back on feminism. It's only ever been in opposition to to rights and to progress. Yeah. Like this rhetoric leads places because rhetoric is what spells out the plans for future policies. And that's why you have to pay attention to it. So what rhetoric has he used that concerns you in that sort of context? Definitely the parental rights rhetoric, definitely the gender ideology. He said both of those things repeatedly. And it's the kind of thing that maybe the first time he said it, you could give him some plausible deniability. Maybe he didn't understand the connotations of it. Um, it's generous to give someone that kind of room, but you have to and um, give them a chance to explain themselves. He has had a gal Canada, Faye Johnstone and Faye's organizations. He's had multiple LGBTQ rights activists. He's had the first openly trans conservative candidate. He's had all of these individuals speak out against his anti-trans rhetoric. 
and then he uses it again. Then again, to me, that is when the red flag becomes a blaring red alarm. Mm-hmm. Because if you can look all of those organizations, those people, those gay folks, lesbian folks, bi folks, trans folks in the face as they're telling you that you using these words is offensive and will lead to harm and is a precursor to harm in so many other jurisdictions and you keep going that shows a lack of empathy and a lack of i don't know just it shows a political calculus that to me is devoid of any concern for the for the vulnerable if you're not governing or running your politics or or your campaigns or in a way that has an eye to protecting the most vulnerable in our society what are you doing like who are you governing for like that's my whole thing i mean i i feel that there is or i observe that there is like a punching down that's happening absolutely from the ruling class and that's why i bring up like a backlash against dei and i see it everywhere it's the claudine gay situation yeah it's the it's it's the book banning it's the um it's the taking over of school boards that's something we have to watch out for too Uh, oh yeah it's all of those things that are ignored but are so important. Yeah. And you can see a trend because um, what Bay said, and I thought this was just brilliant. What she said was that, um, what do you think is going to happen? They are policing our bodies. Guess who's next? Absolutely. Women. Yeah. Right. And we could all already see that happening. And so, you know, nobody's immune is my point, unless you're, you know, a, a white Christian, blah, 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 who has, who's comfortable financially. Said, I believe there's been studies done that people with authoritarian mindsets who are very tribal and, you know, divisive, when they run out of people to, ex- to <laughs> attack the rights of, they start doing it to each other. Like, yeah. It's, yeah. 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 There is a, an authoritarian bent to this. Nailed it. Who, where, you know, the ruling class gets to say who is a person and who is not. And it is the homeless encampments and raiding of the homeless encampments. And we need to pay attention to that because they first start with the most vulnerable, but they're not going to stop there. So yeah. it's the normalization of Pierre Poilievre's, um like right wing populism that is scary to me because there's no pushback in yeah. in in that class, right? and there's no pushback in the media. Mm-hmm. which I'm finding really disappointing mm-hmm. because it feels like a bit of an abdication to see all of these groups coming out and condemning this rhetoric and failing to comfort it. Like, it's it's kind of wild to me. It's just showing me how little diversity you have within your newsrooms and in decision-making um, positions in those newsrooms, especially if you're ignoring these kind of systematic attacks or on LGBTQ rights or downplaying them um, when that comes, you know, like if you're going to both sides these issues, you're both sizing someone's rights. That's not something that we should be both sizing. That's not something that should be wrapped up in political rhetoric. It's something that should just be accepted and a given. But unfortunately, we're opening up people's humanity for debate and for political point scoring. And it's really, really disheartening. And I think it's disheartening a lot of conservatives, too. Like, it's not something that 
I think that there's some within the party who are more than happy to go along with this. But there's also some that I think are probably quite uncomfortable or individuals who have left the party because they feel politically homeless now because their idea of conservatism is like small government and not, you know, this constant attacking of trans folks. It's just really gross. And and it's really showing a responsiveness to an incredibly vocal, incredibly online minority that is not, I don't think, reflective of the more general Canadian society. It's like Gamergate playbook, right? Where this small group of people have figured out if they are loud enough online, they can manufacture an outrage that companies, politicians, policymakers, um, media will all interpret as a natural, you know, organic outrage when in fact it is manufactured. And that's why you see things like Target pulling its pride displays in response, because they think this is real and that they have to respond to it. But it's just a group of people who have figured out how to game our insatiable need to both sides everything. So let me put a pin in Gamergate because I want to come back to that. Um, the both sizing of everything is absolutely where how we got here and this this idea of objectivity but what i find is that that only works one way i i you know i look at the people on the streets um when it comes to palestine and palestinians and gaza and like worldwide and they're not listened to so and why do you think that is? Why do you think they're not both sizing that? Not the media, but but policymakers and companies and so on and so forth. Well, even the media a little bit. Because, yeah. I don't know, I mean, I feel like when so many of the people in position of, positions of power are like older white dudes, they're what is perceived once again as the norm are their norms mm -hmm. that means that their center is a little bit is conservative anyway exactly mm -hmm. like it's not considered bias to function from the operating uh sort of premise that too much government spending bad yeah, but it is considered bias to function from the premise that Palestinian lives matter as much as Israeli lives. Right. And I just find that interesting when you consider what positions tend to be more common among racialized folks mm -hmm. versus the old white dudes that are kind of in charge of everything, you know? And it's like, I just, I feel like... um a big problem in our society is that we kind of get this inertia where we think that we kind of cling to a normal that actually hurts a lot of vulnerable groups when we could be pushing for better. And we ignore vulnerable groups because we're clinging to that normal that is in many ways rooted in systemic prejudices and racism. And I don't know. I think that yeah, and misogyny for sure. Yeah, and misogyny. Yeah, and uh, and I think that we're not. We haven't come as far as we like to think that we have. And what we're seeing the rhetoric around trans rights also shows how quickly and easily we can backslide because people are afraid to be seen as pushing the envelope or or changing too much or being too radical. And when these vocal groups characterize their hateful opinions as just wanting a return to, nor to return to normalcy and to the status quo and frame this as being the status quo. Um, I think that a lot of these folks in positions of power listen to that and they don't listen to the racialized and female members of their newsrooms or cabinets or, you know, um, in policy spaces. I just... Yeah, it's a bit disheartening. Yeah, because the people who shut the fuck up are, you know, the racialized people who shut the fuck up. The, the, um, as we've seen, the people who think, who outwardly say that, you know, Palestinians deserve rights 
okay, are quickly shut down. And or or they're or they're on le or they're fired, right? And yeah. that is concerning to me because I'm like, what is this McCarthyism that we're seeing? And again, I think it's like part of the problem is the ruling class is punching down. And they're like, fuck this, fuck your racialized shit. <laughs> we're 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 over it. Okay. Yeah. The George Floyd era has passed. Let's go back to quote unquote normalcy, the status quo. And like that to me is in a way disheartening. But here's what I find too. I think that the movement building that we have done over the years has done some, has prepared for this moment. I like talking about settler colonialism. When we think about indigenous rights, we think about residential schools. We think about what sold in. We think about all of that becoming aware is part like that's movement building. George Floyd, movement building, Black Lives Matter, movement building. And so I hear, first of all, Gen Z, like, hello for that generation. Okay. All these boomers who are like, they don't like to work. I'm just like, no, they don't want to work without being paid. They don't care about your corporation or making it up the ladder. They may be t teaching us something, right? And so a lot of Gen Z online are talking like, like we've been pushing for in the last, say, 10 years. But rhetoric does have a tendency to waft into the air, let's say, and people catch on to it. I'm, I'm really proud of that. People who are scared to be radicals, oh, I be relate. Even though I am like considered a radical, I'm sure. Um, even I have that kind of um, ambivalence where I'm just like, am I? And then I end up doing it anyway. <laughs> but I do think about it. Like, I don't, I just don't want to be one of those people who you look back and say, yeah, she didn't really say anything. Or exactly. you're not one of those people who said, I do not want that. Before it was cool, a lot of us, you included, um, did a lot of work to expose ourselves to that. Like to say, hey, this is fucked up. Like how many people have died or this is fucked up. Like, why are we attacking trans people? You know, like, this is fucked. And it's wrong. Yeah. Anyway, back to Gamergate. You have a nice <laughs> little video about, yes. about Gamergate, why it was so important, um, and how it's the playbook for, you know, how Andrew Tate came along and gained followers, or Jordan Peterson. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Gamergate is really interesting because it kind of like was a major online version of something that it's an old playbook, but Gamergate pushed it into the social media era where, you know, these guys said it was about fairness in gaming and they said it was about um, ethics in video game journalism. But what it was actually about and what it started with was hating women and marginalized folks and pushing back on any kind of political correctness. And, you know, it all started because this guy did an unhinged blog post about his ex-girlfriend making a bunch of unfounded claims. And then a bunch of dudes all piled on and like wanted to have his back or whatever. And then they expanded their targets to like include other women. And it just like got out of control. And it basically... Um, ended up being this very organized group of very online, very angry, very right-wing men who were 
being very good at manufacturing outrage. Like they literally planned what, what day of the week to send emails to certain individuals in positions of power at companies to make it feel like this is the end of the world and that they have to pull out of this of advertising here or of you know they they basically um they realized that if they're very loud and very focused and very organized in that rage they can convince entire multi-million dollar corporations that this is a natural outrage that must be responded to and addressed and they succeeded and in the time since then, you know, and and it also preys on that desire from the media to both sides, everything, as I mentioned before. And so instead of actually interrogating the substance of what was being said, they were just presenting the sort of two sides of Gamergate. And that actually legitimized and moved the um, it sort of moved the Overton window there. It, it changed what the what the normal was, what the divider between the sides that needed to be given equal play was. And so these guys were really successful. And once they figured out that playbook worked, you realize that they can use it with a million other things. I mean, um, Claudine Gay is arguably that whole thing was a Gamergate situation. <laughs> like she was subjected to a level of scrutiny that almost no one in the academic world has been subjected to before. And if, I'm sure if you subjected many other people to it, they would absolutely fail. And it was, you know, this very organized, very persistent campaign from this small, very online group of people. And it just, it works. And we're totally unequipped to deal with it because the media and these corporations and politicians haven't figured out that this is all manufactured, that it is being done with a purpose. And that's really scary because until we figure out this playbook um, and we being, you know, those those major companies and mainstream media and stuff, until they figure out this playbook and learn to read it and recognize it for what it is, these bad actors are going to be able to continue mobilizing in ways that target progressive policies and progressive individuals and progressive change in any capacity because they figured out the playbook. It's very scary. So how does that work into the incel community? Like, did the incel community spring from this type of thing? Or were they always there? Or... um is are they like are those that organize to um sort of to provide um opposition to progressive policies like how do they work out like are they mostly incels as we've seen they can cause a lot of violence and, you know, if you think, like, I think, I think of the van attack, the London van attack. Was it the London van attack? Yes. And the, there was a Toronto van attack too, where, um, like there was incel like rhetoric. And I feel, I think it's like, it's morphed into boys are downtrodden. We need to save boys. And yeah, I like, heard that's a really important part that I left out of the explanation, yeah. which is that these guys co-opt the language of victimhood when they are the oppressor, not the oppressed. But they present themselves as the oppressed and they say that so loudly and so continually. And then the media will frame them as potentially the oppressed because they're both sides in it. And it just confers this legitimacy on their position and on, you know, their status as an oppressed group that actually shouldn't exist if they're being meaningfully interrogated. And if you're actually looking at the substance of their claims to be oppressed. So, you know, like incels aren't actually oppressed in the sense that they're like 
there's a systematic effort from society to deprive them of sex. You know, like maybe they're just assholes. Maybe they don't respect women and that's why they're not getting laid. It's not that hard to get laid. You know, yeah, I know. Um, yeah. But these guys present themselves as like the ultimate victims of women's cruelty. And because they feel entitled to our bodies. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then you have people like Jordan Peterson coming out and floating ideas of enforced monogamy as if that's like legitimate. <laughs> and it's just like we can't let the ridiculous false framings of victimhood um, be accepted into our cultural zeitgeist when they're totally dishonest. It's because there's so much money in it all, you know, like there's a lot of money in grifting and scaring people and taking advantage of those fears to sell them stuff. And um there are, these guys are profiting in the areas where the media is failing and these guys are swooping in with their false information claiming to have all the answers and scooping up the money in those spaces Absolutely. and it's it's really sad and scary and something needs to be done about it and you know i could go into this whole rabbit hole that i don't think we really have time to get into about <laughs> the ad tech industry that is funding these guys. Wait, um, what? The what? The ad tech industry. So advertisements. Oh, yes, we were talking about Google. Yeah. Yeah. Google's a, a huge player in the ad tech industry to the point that there is, um, I think it's an FTC lawsuit against them um, to try and break up their monopoly mm -hmm. um, or what the FTC is alleging is a monopoly over the ad tech and ad exchanges because programmatic advertising is this it's the automation of the ad industry. And so basically you just like hand your money off to a, a company like Google, tell them I wanna reach women aged 25 to 35 who like cars. And they're like, we got you. And then you have no idea from that point on. And that money goes into this incredibly opaque, incredibly unregulated, zero oversight black box. Well, I guess next to zero oversight black box of the ad tech world and Ads are served billions of times a day in the blink of an eye. And if bad actors understand this incredibly technical system and complex and opaque system, they can use that to siphon away that money. And this is an industry that is projected by 2031 to be worth trillions of dollars. And studies have shown that about 3% of that money is going to an unknown delta. So there's a bunch of money just floating around to be hoovered up and no one is watching this. Um, the only people watching it are watchdog organizations. And uh, it's pretty scary because like we've like you can catch guys like Breitbart using this because how else are you seeing ads from companies like BMW that have said, I never want to advertise on Breitbart. Why are you still seeing BMW ads on their site then? It's things like that. So it's uh, it's very complicated, very messy, but it's also a huge part of why the disinformation economy is thriving. Anyway, a lot, of, a lot of this stuff is hard for anyone to know how it works. And that's why people who are incredibly motivated to understand these systems can take advantage of them. That's why everybody should listen and watch your TikTok videos, which <laughs> are also available on Twitter basically anything except yeah. linkedin <laughs> oh i'm posting them on linkedin now that's okay, new. good i just started posting them there like no one likes them because i don't have any network there but <laughs> you'll build <laughs> one chart <laughs> linkedin is because like who knew that linkedin would become like the place for like revolution it's like oh my god <laughs> yeah like, oh my god and then, oh my gosh anyway i mean so you are on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, YouTube, um, TikTok. Basically everywhere but Facebook because Facebook is dead. How can people reach you? Like, what are your handles? So on Twitter, or, yeah, on Twitter, I am at Rachel Gilmore. That's A-T, Rachel Gilmore. Um, I am r.gilmore on Instagram. I am Rachel underscore Gilmore on uh tiktok and i am realizing now i probably should have standardized some of these but i did not but i do have a link tree 
linked in most of my socials. So if you find one, you can probably find the rest. <laughs> yeah, Linktree is good to navigate people to. Yeah, other very helpful. Other and yeah, I would love for anyone to check out my stuff. Um, I'm, you know, doing something a little different, doing it on my own. And uh, any uh, any support, any feedback, any thoughts are more than welcome. Because um, I'm just trying to get the information out there. So yeah, in a very in a very like in a very modern way. So uh, I am going to say goodbye to you and your winged eyeliner. <laughs> and please come back on the pod and tell us some more about your reporting and what trends you see and what we should be aware of. Absolutely. I would love to. All right, Rachel. Um, until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for having me on. My bitch is bad and bullshit.